You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, two-thirds of which are topics that have never and will never be on the podcast, as well as Moxie LaBouche, voiceovers. Save 50% off the going rate. Email moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. Born into slavery, Gabriel Prosser grew to be a strapping young man, trained as a blacksmith and learned to read. He, his brothers, and his wife hatched a plan to not only free themselves from bondage, but all enslaved people in Virginia. Their plan was to gather more men, take over the capital of Richmond, and kill all the white people, with the exception of Methodists, Quakers, and the French. Prosser would then rule the new kingdom of Virginia. The plan didn't work. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Why didn't they rebel? This is a question that should have occurred to every American schoolchild when studying the Civil War and slavery. Why didn't they rebel? The truth of the matter is, they did. More than one-third of the population in the South in the 18th century were enslaved people. In the 1943 book, American Negro Slave Revolts, historian Herbert Apthiker estimated there were over 250 rebellions of enslaved people in the U.S. between 1619 and 1865. Some historians put that number over 300. So rebellion was a lot more common than we were led to believe. And even if enslaved people weren't taking part in an armed uprising, many would fight back in small ways, tainting food, work slowdowns, feigning injuries, damaging equipment, and so forth. The New World had slave rebellions basically as long as there were people enslaved there. The first documented rebellion taking place on Santo Domingo on Christmas Day 1522. Some rebellions managed to make it into the history books and pop culture, like the seizure of the Amistad, when a boat full of kidnapped Africans overthrew their captors and took control of the ship to both win their freedom and be memorialized in a film by Steven Spielberg. The first recorded slave revolt in the United States happened an hour down the road from me in Gloucester, Virginia. In 1663, white indentured servants included enslaved Africans in their plan to do away with their master and be free. Another servant betrayed them and was rewarded with his freedom. It would be nearly 25 years, as far as we know, before the first all-black slave revolt, which again took place in Virginia. The largest slave rebellion outside the United States was the successful insurrection of black slaves that overthrew French rule and abolished slavery in Saint-Domingue, establishing the independent nation of Haiti. That proved unequivocally that the enslaved could defeat their captors and live free. That precedent frightened enslavers on the mainland. Southern slave owners actively repressed any sign of rebellion. Laws dictating when, where, and how slaves could congregate were enacted to prevent insurrection and quell white paranoia. It's the same reason the enslaved were forbidden from learning to read or write. Words spread ideas, and your captives may develop drapetomania, the medical condition 
and let this make you grateful your doctor actually had to go to school, the mental illness that caused black slaves to want to run away. Yeah, that's what these folks told themselves, in case you thought the narrative myth of the happy slave was a recent invention. With plantation populations under tight control, insurrection would tend to come from the cities or parts of the country where there were lots of small farms rather than one big one. We don't have time today to talk about all 300 rebellions. We'll just hit on some of the ones that are most likely to make you ask why your high school history textbook included between zero and one slave rebellion, while at the same time definitely mentioning white John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Records are a bit spotty for our first subject, the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina in 1793. History is colored both by the mouth of the teller and the ear of the listener with their preconceptions, and we only have one first-hand contemporary account. Early on a late summer Sunday morning, 20 enslaved people gathered near the Stono River. Why Sunday morning? A recently passed law required all white men to carry firearms with them to church on Sunday. So the rebels made their move when the men and at least some of the guns would be elsewhere. Their leader was a literate enslaved man named Jemmy, and also called Cato, so it's sometimes called Cato's Rebellion. He was from the Kingdom of Congo, modern-day Angola, as were many of the other men, who are believed to have been warriors back in Central Africa. That region was embroiled at the time in intense civil wars, and selling POWs to slavers was a common practice. Rebellions work better if you're armed, so the party first set upon a gun shop, killing the owner and arming themselves. Loaded for bear, they then marched down a main road in St. Paul's Parish, beating drums and singing, carrying signs that said freedom as they marched south for Florida. More on why Florida in a little bit. Along the way, they liberated more enslaved people, burned plantation houses, and killed nearly two dozen enslavers as they went. This wasn't just thoughtless violence, although that could arguably have been justified. They did let an innkeeper live because he was known to have treated his enslaved people relatively kindly. Not every enslaved person wanted to join them, and it's said that some were forced to go along. It's not that they didn't want to be free, but they knew the odds and the consequences. Word had spread quickly through the surrounding area, and white landowners quickly formed a militia. It was this militia that found the rebels before sundown that same day, when the group, numbering nearly 100 at this point, stopped to rest. A firefight ensued, and though the rebels gave as good as they got, the battle ultimately went to the enslavers. Forty-four enslaved people were killed in the shootout or executed later, though it's said some were spared if the enslavers believed they had been forced to join the rebellion. The following year, as a direct result of the Stono Rebellion, South Carolina passed the 1740 Negro Act, which prohibited importing more enslaved Africans. Why? They knew they were outnumbered. 
At the time, there were more people in bondage in South Carolina than free people, and more revolts seemed inevitable. Some of the provisions of the Negro Act had existed in law already, but weren't consistently enforced, like prohibiting slaves to gather, read and write, grow their own food, or work elsewhere to earn money. The Act also required armed militias to regularly patrol to prevent enslaved people from gathering. The tiniest sliver of a silver lining here came in the form of heavy fines levied for particularly harsh treatments of the enslaved, a tacit admission that treating people like animals you don't like could cause them to want to rebel against you. This is a tricky episode to segue in and out of, so I'll just set things off with a musical sting instead. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, which you must at least tolerate if you're still here, head over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts to hear me read you The Mask of the Red Death as the first bonus episode for October. It's the story of a ruler ignoring his people dying of disease to party with his cronies, ultimately getting his comeuppance. Can't imagine why I was thinking about that recently. And welcome to our newest patrons, Dale, Sarah, and Harley. Every single member of patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts is sincerely appreciated. And if you want to hang out with like-minded folks but don't want to have to spend any money, there's always the Brainiac Break Room, facebook.com slash groups plural slash Brainiac Break Room, where you can post any kind of cool facts that you find online. I'm also grateful for everyone who took the time to review the Your Brain on Facts book on Amazon. And if you've been meaning to, I sure would appreciate if you got around to it because we got a bad review recently. And I can't tell how much of that is my writing or potentially a problem when the book was ported over to Kindle. But, oh man, it sucked waking up and reading that. But thankfully, I can also read things like when Mev said it is funny and informative, or is it informative and funny? Time flew by as I read it. Add me to your pagachi making list. Pagachi, for those who don't know, is a Slavic flatbread with uh, cheesy potatoes inside and brown butter and chives on top. Only a few people in my family even know how to make it, and only two of us are any good at it. If you lived near me, you would want to be my friend, just for the pagachi. And there was also Taylor, who left a five-star review that said, Love it. Almost as good as listening to Moxie on the podcast. So if you've got a minute, I'd really appreciate it if you left your review, so maybe we can at least push this two-star review off the first screen. And if you're one of the lucky few who has more time to listen to podcasts these days, here's another show you should check out. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. Two years after Stono and 750 miles north, there was a violent uprising on a massive scale. Except there wasn't really. There had been a string of arson fires in New York City, 
with four fires on one day in early April. The only thing hotter than the fires were the rumors of who started them and why. Names started being whispered of this enslaved person or that one being witnessed fleeing the fire or being in the area with a particular chip on their shoulder for the owner or residents of the building. The fires and other crimes that happened to take place around that time must have been part of some larger plan. There was also a fear of Catholics at the time, as the mother country, Britain, was in a bit of a tiff with Spain. Waspy residents whipped themselves into a frenzy. The whole thing was rather like the Salem witch trials, and in fact, people in New England accused New Yorkers of having imagined or fabricated the whole plot. The New York situation followed the Salem playbook to the letter. There was little or no evidence, no real good evidence anyway, and everyone who was arrested was forced to name other people who were involved, who would in turn be arrested and forced to name names, so that the whole thing grew geometrically, even exponentially. A grand jury was impaneled, and an indentured servant named Mary Burton was made to testify. She worked for a publican named John Hewson, who was known to buy stolen goods from enslaved people, as well as selling them alcohol and allowing them to gather in his tavern. Burton testified that three enslaved men who were habitués of the tavern, Caesar, Cuffy, and Prince, along with some poor whites, had formed a conspiracy to burn the city and the wealthiest citizens along with it. A white prostitute with ties to the enslaved Caesar was also brought in and made to name co-conspirators. Before long, more than 100 enslaved people and a handful of white people were brought into the basement of the city hall and interrogated on charges of burglary, arson, and insurrection. And by interrogated, I of course mean harassed and beaten. These tactics resulted in 81 confessions. Caesar and Prince were hanged. The prostitute, the publican, and his wife were all convicted and publicly executed, with the publican's body left hanging as a warning to others. But that wasn't enough for the judge presiding over the investigation and trial. He offered cash rewards for evidence of the plot, on a sliding scale depending on the value of the information and the color of the informant's skin. Over the course of the three-month investigation, some 150 people were arrested and confessed, in huge bunny ears, or testified against someone else. Burton continued her accusations through the summer, eventually accusing more than 20 white people, including a Latin teacher named John Uri, who was accused of using his Catholic faith to influence the rebellion. Uri became the fourth and final white person executed for this non-conspiracy. When all was done and dusted and the fervor had died out, four white people and at least 30 black had been executed. Around 80 more people, mostly black but some white, were exiled from the state of New York. The remaining enslaved people were sold to plantations in the Caribbean. In the aftermath, New York Assembly decided to stop importing enslaved people from the Caribbean, which had previously supplied nearly three-fourths of the enslaved population, believing that people taken from Africa 
would be less prone to organize revolt than those purchased from the Caribbean. On the topic of being particular about where you buy other human beings from, it's important to remember that not all the people enslaved in the Americas were transported from Africa. Between two and a half and five million Native Americans were enslaved throughout the Western Hemisphere from pretty much the day Columbus thought he'd landed in India. A quick aside about Columbus, since this episode was recorded on what used to be Columbus Day, he wasn't the only person who thought the Earth was round. Everybody knew it was, and they had for hundreds of years. He thought that it was much smaller than everyone else did, and also shaped like a pear. That's what he set out to prove. He was a minor name in history until a wave of Italian immigrants to the U.S., and the pushback against them, needed a figurehead they could hold up to help them look good to resident Americans. But back to the main story. While people enslaved in Africa tended to be adult males, the majority of enslaved Native Americans were women and children. In the early 1700s, two groups of people sought refuge in the Everglades of Spanish-controlled Florida. People who had escaped enslavement and the Seminole, who were just trying to find some place to live without seeing a white colonist every time they turned around. Spain welcomed both groups warmly, even giving legal freedom to the previously enslaved, provided they would take up arms to defend the area on Spain's behalf. Temporary settlements became permanent, and the two groups intermingled and intermarried in what would become the first legally sanctioned black free town in America, and giving rise to the people referred to as Black Seminoles. This development didn't really sit well with whites in the South, who didn't like the idea of living so close to an armed population of people they'd enslaved and people they'd driven from their ancestral land. Plus, the people they currently held in bondage kept trying to run away to live with the Black Seminole. So rude. And so the U.S. government, from George Washington forward, was faced with the question of what to do about the Florida problem. In 1818, under President James Monroe, General Andrew Jackson, who was, generally speaking, a bastard, took it upon himself, without orders, to invade Florida and claim it for the U.S. While he was at it, he executed the people who'd had the temerity to defend their homes, figuring that the emptier a territory is, the easier it is to annex. The United States then properly bought Florida from Spain, and when Jackson took his turn on the seat of power, he decided to get rid of the remaining Seminole, and all other Native Americans if he could. Told you. Real bastard. This led to the Second Seminole War, from 1835 to 1942, which became the largest and most expensive of the so-called Indian Wars. Because the communities were tied together, what happened to the Seminole also happened to the former slaves, and vice versa. Plus, the Black Seminole knew that if the government came for the Seminole, they would more than likely be enslaved. From the winter of 1835 to the summer of 1836, Black Seminoles, the recently self-liberated, and the Seminoles worked together 
to create the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. One of the largest rebellions in U.S. history, period. They gathered nearly three times as many enslaved people as there were colonists at the Boston Tea Party. And together, they laid waste to Florida sugar mills, the heart of the local economy, which had effects that reached across the country. The government knew that alliance was too much to handle, and they offered guaranteed freedom to black Seminoles who turned in their Seminole brethren. There were very few takers. In 1838, John Horse, the de facto leader of the Black Seminole, agreed to stop fighting the U.S. government in exchange for moving safely to Indian territory in what is now Oklahoma and for legal recognition of their freedom. The government agreed, and then, in the most unexpected and surprising twist that no one could have ever possibly foreseen, went back on its word, with the United States Attorney General declaring a decade later the government never had the authority to recognize their freedom, and those who had been slaves were, in fact, still enslaved. This basically put a target on the backs of all black Seminole, so they fled again, this time to Mexico. Slavery had been illegal in Mexico for decades, and the nation welcomed them. When slave catchers from Texas would go into Mexico after the Black Seminole, they were met with resistance not only from the Black Seminole, but also the Mexicans, and helpfully, the Mexican army. It was the only U.S. slave rebellion where the enslaved were able to secure permanent freedom and a land of their own, and all they needed to do was walk from Florida to Oklahoma to Mexico and make friends with an army. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. If it actually worked, why don't we ever hear about the Black Seminole Rebellion? One reason is that historians tend to specialize. They might study Native American history, or they might study American slavery, each to the exclusion of the other. Tales of the rebellion had to be repressed in its own time to stop other enslaved people from seeing their success and rising up. They did the same thing with the Haitian Revolution. And then there is the all-important narrative. You can't claim you treated the humans you subjugate and own well if same are ready to take up arms against you. It just flies in the face of the lost cause, the pseudo-historical ideology that claims the cause of the Confederate states was just and heroic. It's where the states' rights lie and all the monuments come from. 
If any slave revolt makes it into a textbook, five will get you ten, it's going to be Nat Turner. So we won't go into that one in detail. But as a refresher, Nat Turner's rebellion, also known as the Southampton Insurrection, was a rebellion of African enslaved people in Southampton County, Virginia in 1831, led by Nat Turner. The rebels killed about 60 people, at least 50 of whom were white. The rebellion was put down within a few days, but Turner survived in hiding for more than two months afterwards. The state executed 56 enslaved people accused of being part of the rebellion, and many non-participant slaves were punished in the frenzy. And again, laws were passed against education and gatherings for free blacks as well as the enslaved, and this time that included gathering for worship, requiring white ministers be present at all worship services. To tell us a little bit more about the man himself and how Turner became a leader, please welcome Rafiq Taylor, host of Garbled Twistery. Thank you, Moxie. I'm Rafiq, host of Garbled Twistery, and I'm going to give you all a crash course on who this Nat Turner character was, okay? Turner was born into slavery on October 2nd, somewhere in Southampton County, Virginia, and his mother wasn't the one who named him Nat. The man who kept him in chains, Ben Turner, took that particular privilege, as was custom for slave owners. The thing his mother did do was encourage the boy to follow his dreams with a side order of you're destined for greatness and some slavery is lame to drink. You see... Slave owner Benjamin Turner didn't particularly mind that little Nat was learning how to read and write. In fact, Nat was a top-tier learner. And his favorite book? The New York Times bestseller for like three centuries straight, The Bible. And when I say he loved the Bible, I'm talking about fasting, praying, and studying ad nauseum. He was so into the lore that he would have dreams and visions about the events, and he would interpret them as messages from capital G, God. And these visions literally determined what actions that would take. Like, there was this one time when he was, like, 21, where he ran away from the plantation, couldn't get anything to eat, and the extreme hunger caused a hallucination that told him to go back to his oppressors. And he did. So, yeah... He loved his Bible, and he unflinchingly obeyed every quote-unquote sign that came his way. And with the Bible being the New York Times bestseller for three centuries straight, of course Nat is going to have vivid and exciting thought leadership conferences, I mean sermons, spreading his powerful words all over the plantation. And his preaching must have definitely been something to behold, because he even had a small but captive white audience attending his sermons. I mean, what better way to demonstrate that you mean religious business than gaining a nickname like The Prophet, which is what all the enslaved folks on the plantation called him. So... If we combine the arbitrarily brutal, extreme reality of slavery, Nat Turner's big, intelligent brain, his truly fearless devotion to his Bible, his far-spreading delegation that is fearlessly devoted to him, and the fact that the number of enslaved folks in Southampton County outnumber the white folks? Yeah, 
it's only a matter of time. Nat's mom told him he was destined for something great. And Nat himself has been seeing visions and hearing signs in the fields telling him that the serpents are here and he needs to take action to restore God's kingdom. And what sign does Nat Turner witness on February 12th, 1831? A solar eclipse. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to Garbled Twistery on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen, and on my website, garbledtwistery.net. I'm returning the microphone to you, Moxie. Thanks, Rafiq. If anyone listening is a school textbook writer or on the selection committee or however that works, people also need to know about the German Coast Uprising. Named for the region in Louisiana that had first been settled by German immigrants, even if you don't think of German as one of the flavors of New Orleans. It was led by a man whose origins are disputed. Maybe he was born into slavery in Louisiana, maybe he was born free in Haiti, one Charles de Londe, or Deslandes, I've heard it said both ways, I'm going to go with the more French pronunciation. On a January evening in 1811, Delon led a band of rebels downriver through the parishes of St. Charles and St. John the Baptist, about 40 miles from the city of New Orleans. January might seem like a bad time to be marching in an insurrection, but it was actually ideal. January is between growing seasons, even in the relative warmth of Louisiana, so the enslaved people had more available time. Delon was of mixed race, born to a black mother, and worked, of all things, as a slave driver at the Woodland Plantation, owned by Manuel Andre. Delon led a small band of enslaved men into the mansion of the plantation owners, where they wounded Andre and killed his son. Andre was able to flee and raise the alarm. Delon and his men armed themselves with muskets from the basement, and even took Andre's military uniforms. Delon knew this would lend their movement credence, taking a page, as the enslavers predicted they might, from the Haitian Revolution. During their two-day, 20-mile march, the men burned five plantation houses and several sugar houses. The rebels headed to New Orleans, liberating others along the way, and as they marched, their numbers grew. Nearly 500 people marched together, carrying cane knives, axes, machetes, the tools of their labor now turned into weapons, and shouting two slogans, On to New Orleans, and freedom or death. As the rebellion unfolded, terrified whites fled their plantations for the relative apparent safety of the city, even though that's also where the rebellion was going. The territorial governor at the time imposed a curfew and dispatched two companies of volunteer militia, 30 regular army soldiers, and a few dozen sailors for good measure. In the wee hours of morning on January 10th, one of the militias had reached the plantation of Jacques Fortier, where the commander thought the rebels had made camp. The rebels had made camp at Fortier's plantation, but they had begun backtracking two hours earlier. Unfortunately, that put them on a course to intercept another detachment of militia. The battle was joined, but it wasn't long before the rebels ran out of ammo and were overtaken. Within a half hour, dozens of the enslaved had been killed, with the rest fleeing into the swampy woods, 
Delande was captured the next day and, without benefit of a trial, convicted and brutally executed. Think the end of Braveheart, but less slow motion and more fire. When the smoke cleared, metaphorically and a little bit literally, two white men and nearly 100 enslaved African men and women had died. Those who were captured were then put on trial, found guilty, and executed by firing squad. That sounds de rigueur, as sad as that is to say, but it's after their deaths that things get medieval. The heads of the executed were cut off and put on pikes along a major roadway to New Orleans so that other enslaved people would see them. It's said that the savage display ran for 60 miles, meaning you could drive at highway speed and it would take you an hour before you stopped passing severed heads. As with all of our other examples, in the wake of the rebellion, laws were made restricting life even more for both enslaved and free blacks in the territory, though some enslaved people who warned plantation owners or served on the militia were given their freedom. Since yesterday was Indigenous Peoples Day in many places, shout out on our social media, Facebook and Instagram, your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, if it's Indigenous Peoples Day where you live. And even though I only barely touched on the intersection of Native Americans and the North American slave trade, I want to jump into the future, by which I mean our past, to another time that seemed to be chock full of revolution, the 1960s. Cast your eyes to the west, to the edge of California, and a rocky island in San Francisco Bay. Yes, that island, Alcatraz, the rock. After the American Indian Center in San Francisco was destroyed by a fire in October of 1969, an activist group called Indians of All Tribes turned their sights to Alcatraz Island and the prison which had closed six years earlier. Henceforward, I'm going to abbreviate Indians of All Tribes to IAT rather than shorten it to Indians, because that just doesn't feel right, though it's not otherwise abbreviated that way. A small group of activists, led by Mohawk college student Richard Oakes, went out to the island on November 9th, but they were only there for one night before authorities removed them. That didn't disappoint Oakes, who told the San Francisco Chronicle, If a one-day occupation by white men on Indian land years ago established squatters' rights, then the one-day occupation of Alcatraz should establish Indian rights to the island. Eleven days later, a much larger group of Indians of all tribes members, a veritable occupation force of 89 men, women, and children, sailed to the island in the dead of night and claimed Alcatraz for all North American natives. Despite warnings from authorities, the IAT set up house in the old guards' quarters and began liberally, vibrantly redecorating spray-painting the foreboding gray walls with flowers and slogans like Red Power and Custer Had It Coming. Bonus fact, General George Armstrong Custer was well known for his curly, shoulder-length blonde hair, but even he must have known that he picked a fight he couldn't win, because the night before what would be his last stand, he cut his hair off 
so that the enemy wouldn't recognize him to take his scalp. The Alcatraz water tower bore the message, Peace and Freedom, Welcome, Home of the Free Indian Land. The IAT not only had a plan, they had a manifesto, addressed to the Great White Father and all his people, in which they declared their intention to use the island for a school, cultural center, and museum. Alcatraz was theirs, they claimed, by right of discovery, though the manifesto did offer to buy the island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, the price supposedly paid for the island of Manhattan. Rather than risk PR fallout, the Nixon administration opted to just leave the occupiers alone as long as things remained peaceful, and just kind of wait the situation out. The island didn't even have potable water. How long could they stay there? Well, joke's on you, politicians of 50 years ago, because many of the occupiers had lived in conditions as bad on the reservations. They'd unknowingly been training for this moment their entire lives. Native Americans, college students, and activists swarmed the island, and the population ballooned to more than 600, twice the official capacity of the prison. They formed a governing body and set up a school for the kids, a communal kitchen, a clinic, and a security detail called the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs. Other activists helped move people and supplies to the island, and supportive well-wishers from all over sent money, clothes, and canned food. Government officials would periodically travel to the island to repeatedly try and fail to negotiate. The Indians of all tribes would settle for nothing less than the deed to Alcatraz Island, and the government maintained that such a property transfer was literally impossible. The occupation was going better than anyone had expected, at least for the first few months. Then, many of the initial wave of residents had to go back to college or to their regular life and their places were taken by people who were more interested in no rent and free food than helping any cause. Drugs and alcohol, which had been banned, were soon prevalent. Oakes and his wife would leave Alcatraz after his stepdaughter died in a fall, and things began to unravel even more quickly. In May, the sixth month of the occupation, the government dispensed with diplomatic efforts and cut the remaining electricity to Alcatraz. Only a few weeks later, a fire tore through the island and destroyed several buildings. Federal marshals removed the last occupiers in June the following year, an impressive 19 months after they first arrived. The remaining six men, five women, and four children. Unlike our other stories today, though, this time, when laws were passed after an act of rebellion, they were for the benefit of the rebels, with many states enacting laws for tribal self-rule and the federal government returning some of the land which had been taken over the years. When Alcatraz opened as a national park in 1973, not only had the graffiti from the occupation not been removed, much of it had been preserved as a part of the island's history and the history of Native Americans. And there are people who gather at Alcatraz every November for 
un-Thanksgiving Day to celebrate Native culture and activism. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Gabriel Prosser's rebellion ended before it began. Heavy rains had delayed the start of the mission, allowing time for a militia to be formed by plantation owners who'd been warned about the plot. I'll leave you today with the words of historian Joseph Holloway. The revolts were all doomed from the start, and yet slaves still revolted against insurmountable odds in the fight for their personal freedom and liberty. Remember, you can find the script and the source material at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.